Good morning. Well, as Dave greeted the kids, it's my pleasure and joy to greet you who remain. And I greet you all, friends and strangers, in the name of our one Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful to be gathered by his spirit to worship today. Greetings to you in the sanctuary and greetings to you at home. With those of you who are here, let us know that you're here by signing the black friendship pad. And if, you've, if you're what we call a black no long timer, which I think is more than six weeks, uh, ranging to 50 years, uh, say hello to somebody after the service. This morning we'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9, beginning with verse 38. That's on page 1013 in your Pew Bibles. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. Teacher, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Halloween. For most, this weekend is about costumes and candy, sugar highs and yard decor, the excitement of children and discussion among adults on neighborhood listservs. For the church, Halloween has been about trunk or treat, or -or trick-or-treat, treats or tracks. But for many Christians, this day has been about, well, something more. 
Among the many sources of our current Halloween celebrations is the Christian holiday of All Hallows' Eve. On All Hallows' Eve, the church often fasted, or at least abstained from meat, and held a vigil, praying through the night for, well, sometimes for the dead, sometimes for protection from the dead, but all in anticipation of the next day's celebration of departed saints. For most of the church's history, death, the death of family members and friends of all ages, has been, well, a more prominent part of life and the life of the church. And with that, there has been, for better and sometimes for worse, a greater emphasis on what Christians call the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. If you attended worship on a Sunday 700 years ago, say a mass in medieval Europe, you would be looking up not only at a priest, but also most likely at a big painting of Jesus as the judge. Most churches had what was called a doom painting, an image of Christ seated in judgment and individuals being sorted towards heaven or hell. You don't see anything like that here this morning, do you? What do you see if you look around the room? A cross? A few banners? But no paintings or even stained glass. That's a legacy of the Protestant reformers, whom we also remember this week for Reformation Day. The reformers painted over images in many churches and introduced laity to reading the word for themselves. And yet here we are, centuries later, on All Hallows' Eve, doom paintings whitewashed, here in the city of medicine where we can promise we can avoid death as long as possible and believe in human progress and yet still from the lips of our beloved lord we're confronted with hell how are we to understand jesus words and what are we to do with them In our passage last week, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Even as Jesus told them about his coming, suffering, and death, they were distracted by their own dreams of glory, claims to authority, ambition. That's the context for our passage this week. John saw someone driving out demons in Jesus' name, and he told them to stop. Why? Well, remember that Jesus had given the 12 authority to cast out demons when he sent them out earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Now, most recently, the disciples had a little failure to exercise the evil spirit of the father's young son back at the beginning of chapter 9. But that failure doesn't stop John from telling someone else what to do, does it? Hey, you're not allowed to do that, John says. 
if Jesus will not engage the disciples' quarrels about who is the greatest or guarantee them positions of power in his kingdom, then the disciples can at least make sure that authority remains with them, with their group. They can shore up their position as the twelve. Do you see what's going on here? John's words are telling. John could have said, Jesus, we told this man to stop because he doesn't follow you. But instead, John says, we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. He wasn't in the inner circle. What appears on the surface as zeal for the Lord's name and concern for the purity of his people is in fact tinged with self-seeking and ambition. The disciples want to usurp that authority to be the judge, and Jesus puts them in their place. Do not stop them, Jesus counters and says, whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever is not against us is for us. Those who exercise miraculous gifts of the Spirit, or heck, even those who just give you a cup of water in my name, they should be treated by you as friends, not as competitors or even enemies. Context is everything here. You can clip a soundbite from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke where Jesus says almost the exact opposite. Of this. Instead of whoever is not against us is for us, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not against us is for us, or whoever is not with me is against me. Why the difference? Because in Matthew and Luke, Jesus' statement is made to counter the Pharisees' accusations that he is in league with the devil. It's the conversation about the strong man. Here, Jesus is countering his disciples' assertion that any true follower of Jesus must be in league with them, the twelve. So in Matthew and Luke, he's setting the Pharisees straight by asserting his authority over the devil. And here, Jesus is setting his disciples straight by making it clear that they do not have the authority. It's Jesus who is the judge of heaven and earth, of every man, woman, and child, of every angel, demon, and even the devil himself. But his followers are not the judge. Jesus can and does demand absolute loyalty. Whoever is not with me is against me. But his followers may not make those same demands. Even those who are closest to Jesus, even those who have walked Jesus, watched Jesus walk on water, who have seen him transfigured on a mountain, they are not to make special claims to Jesus' authority, but to extend generosity to all those who claim Jesus' name lest they cause others to stumble. Christianity Today is running a podcast. It's an audio series. 
entitled Who Killed Mars Hill? The series explores the rise and fall of a Seattle megachurch, Mars Hill, and its founder, Mark Driscoll. The writers of the series try hard to both celebrate the baptisms, the transformation, the genuine work of the Lord, and to take a hard look at the culture of church leadership, especially the church's relationship to its founder. Over time, there developed a a demand for absolute loyalty to his vision. Get on the bus or get run over by the bus were his words. Over time, there developed an insistence that they were succeeding where every other Christian, every other church had failed. This painful story, which is by no means unique, helps us imagine what Jesus was countering in his disciples, doesn't it? And it helps us understand why he raises the stakes here. That those who would be quick to cast themselves as judges must be reminded that they too are under the Lord's judgment. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it is better to enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than to end up in hell. And Jesus follows each of these warnings with colorful language, ending with a quote from Isaiah. The word here for hell is Gehenna, a Greek transcription of the Aramaic name for one of the valleys that was outside of Jerusalem. This valley was the site of idol worship, including child sacrifice, until King Josiah enacted his reforms. You can read about this in the book of 2 Kings. Josiah turned this valley from a site of idol worship into a dump. And the dump was known for a stench of decay, maggots and worms, and fires that burned day and night. And this place, this valley of Hinnom, shaped the Jewish imagination about the judgment of the wicked, as we see in Isaiah 66. It's a vivid description that matches the vivid and hyperbolic instructions to cut off one's own members. Jesus is not advocating or condoning self-mutilation or self-harm here. He's not allowing for something like cutting to punish oneself for sin or purge anxiety, Jesus is calling his followers who more readily imagine what their association with Jesus does for them to instead count the cost of discipleship, To, to imagine less what Jesus does for me and to imagine what it means to follow him, to count the cost And sometimes following Jesus will cost you something you didn't think you could live without. Something that is so much a part of you that you are not sure you will survive if it's taken away. If you've been at Black Knoll for any length of time, then you've 
probably heard of or maybe even read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce with our retired pastor, Alan Poole. And if you're new, then you're in on the joke now. (laughs) It's so much shaped his imagination and ours that it's almost comical, and yet so relevant here. In the book, the narrator boards a bus with citizens of Greytown, that crack in the ground that turns out to be something like hell. And he, along with his passengers on the bus, take a trip to the foothills of heaven. There they are met by a series of shining guides who try to lead the passengers on a journey through this painfully beautiful, real country to enter heaven. At one point on his journey, the narrator encounters a ghost. It's a ghost with a red lizard on his shoulder. And as the narrator encounters him, he's making his way out back to the bus. He says, I'm sorry, I just realized that the behavior of my lizard will never do here. And the angel says, oh, I'll help you quiet your lizard. And he says, oh? He says, yes, I'll kill him. And the man exclaims, how can I tell you to kill my lizard? You'd kill me. The red lizard, the embodiment of the man's lust, has become so much a part of him that he can't imagine living without it. He can no more conceive of life without the lizard than we can imagine what it would be like to lose a limb. And yet in his mercy, the Lord pries away from us those treasured sins that make life hell even when we don't realize it. Christ is the first one to count the cost of sin. Though he was the rightful judge, our Lord came into the world in Jesus, not in judgment, but offering mercy. Though he knew no sin of his own on the cross, he suffered for sin. Christ was cut off not just from a hand or a foot, but from life itself for those things that he calls his followers to then cut out of their lives. Jesus was the first one to enter the kingdom of God maimed, bearing his scars. And Jesus has opened the way for all those who would follow him. But the road is not easy. All who will follow will be salted with fire, Jesus says. But the end, the end is life. What Jesus gives us here, well, it does not satisfy our curiosity about the last things, does it? His words instead, they're a summons to discipleship. They don't satisfy our intellectual curiosity, but they appeal to our will and call us as his followers to a sober response. We must be careful not to do with these verses exactly what Jesus forbids, which is to take his talk of hell and turn it into a stumbling block for the weak. We can do that in many ways. We can do that by, on the one hand, talking about the last things with a measure of clarity and confidence that we're not given, 
Or on the other hand, being dismissive, downplaying what's at stake in Christian discipleship. Both of these extremes, speaking with more clarity than we have or being dismissive of what's at stake in discipleship, both of these usurp Jesus' authority as judge. Instead, with these words, we are to ask, what does my hand grasp at? Where do my feet want to go? What does my eye look at that causes me to stumble? And take the Lord's up, off, take up the Lord on his merciful offer to cut it out, to put sin to death. It is, after all, living sacrifices and not fear that are the best witnesses to our Lord. It seems to me that at this moment, the church in America is biting and devouring itself. It is splintering apart. And we have here an invitation to pray, to pray and ask the Lord to release among all his people a spirit of generosity to all those who claim the name of Christ and the strength for us to follow him. As I look around this sanctuary on Halloween, I do not see any paintings of impending doom, but I do see you, and I remember many of you who are not with us this morning. Russ, Ruth, Joanne, Moses, so many others. It's amazing, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul, knowing what he knew of what Christians could be both at their best and at their worst, wrote to the churches and called them saints. As we enjoy the festivities, as we dress up in costumes, remember God's gracious invitation and the living pictures set before you to become what we are in promise and in name, saints in Christ. It's not a trick, it's a treat. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you show us the truth. Speak, Holy Spirit, now. And show us what you and your mercy would pry from our hands. That we might be more fully alive in you. Make us courageous and faithful friends to one another. Putting to death sin and calling for generosity, love in your body. It seems hard to hold those things together, Lord. But would you make it so by the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead? It's in his name that we would ask or even imagine this. Amen.